There are several reasons why uh, it's nice to sit a longer retreat rather than a real short one. And one reason is that if you sit like just for a weekend, uh, sometimes it's be quite difficult and just maybe coping with more of the pain or whatever. And uh, and that's what you see. But if, you, if you sit longer, like if you, then maybe the, the difficulty kind of opens up and there's a period of calm. Mental states and conditions change. And uh, then if you sit even longer than that, then other things start happening. It gets difficult, different mind states come in. And with time, you learn that uh, how impermanent the mind states are. And that with impermanence, you can see that there's no self. Uh, these things come and they go. And even in the course of one day, you can see how your mind state's kind of out of your control, what you're experiencing. Some periods of the day you feel good. Some, days of the, some periods of the day you feel tired or whatever changes. Um, And then one of the insights that's pretty common is to realize how impersonal some of these mental states can be. Uh, a lot of your thoughts that you've had this retreat are kind of out of your control. And that's the subject of this evening's talk. I want to talk about self and no self a little bit. And there's a story that's told sometimes about a fem- feminist who went to a talk on Buddhism and the person, probably a man, was talking about uh, no-self, the teaching of no-self in Buddhism, and how the ego or the self is really the basic problem. And what's needed is to dismantle the ego, dismantle the self, um, and really penetrate through this, that there's no self at all. And the feminist said, boy, it sounds like a real great religion for men. Did only the women laugh? <laughs> and the subject of self and no self um, the sub- is a complicated one and is often misunderstood. And I think even uh, both in Western thought and Eastern thought and Buddhist thought, the whole idea of self, the concept of self, is very confusing. And there's a lot of abstractions, a lot of discussion about it. It's not very clear. Um, and part of the reason for that is that um, uh, the idea of a self, self is just that. It's an idea. It's an abstraction. It's a thought construct. Uh, there's nothing in your direct experience you can point to and say, this is a self. And so, if you're going to talk about a self, you, and you can't point to what it is, well then, no one's going to agree. And so philosophers have a great time. And often, the teaching of, often enough, the teaching of no-self in Buddhism is misunderstood. And people take it on as almost like a belief system or a dogma, perhaps, and resulting in a certain kind of self-effacement unnecessary self-effacement. And some, occasionally, uh, it results in people abandoning the personal responsibility. Um, it hasn't been so much a problem in recent years, but I think in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot more people who went all out and uh, a little bit maybe fundamentalist about some of the Buddhist teachings. 
Um, and the Buddhist tradition, if you read the uh, scriptures, the different uh, things that Buddhism has to say about the subject of self and no self, um, if you really kind of just you know, scan it, it seems maybe that uh, there's contradictory teachings uh, about self. And certainly the, the teaching of no self is uh, really one of the core teachings of all of Buddhism. And um, uh, even Buddhists go back to it, talking about it over and over again. And I've resisted talking about it too much in my talks in the West because I just heard it too much in Asia. People talk about it over and over again. Um, But then then, uh, there's uh, such statements in the the scriptures, like uh, they're talking about the Eightfold Path, the path of practice. And it says, this is the path by which those with great selves have feared. This is the path by those with great selves have practiced, have found their way. And there's discussion of arhats, of awakened beings, having being great selves, having great selves. And then there's uh, more psychological teachings, and it talks about lowering, uh, lowering the flag of I am, lowering the flag of conceit, this flag that we hang up and fly up so people can see who we are. And then there's teach, such teachings as uh, uh, that maybe many of you have heard. Develop a self like a lamp. Develop a self like an island. Be a lamp to yourself. Be an island unto yourself. Be your own refuge. Make, make yourself your own refuge. And then, in addition, and I think maybe most important kind of Buddhist teaching to hold together with the teaching of no self is a tremendous um, stress that Buddhist teaching puts on personal responsibility. Um, the precepts and the way the precepts are understood, the stress on the precepts, uh, the, the stress on, uh, on the consequences of our actions in the world. Um, I have to do with, you have to either uh, they put a tremendous stress on the person, on the, on the individual in some way. So all these different te- ways of talking about the self have to in some ways be held together. So tonight's talk is about self and no self. And I'd like, if it's possible, for you to think of it as a continuation of my, fo- my last talk about mindfulness of the body. And... I think maybe one of the be- one of the better foundations uh, for understanding the teaching of no self is coming from having really uh, developed and cultivated a strong sense of uh, mindfulness of the body, and perhaps it's a kind of a paradox that um, in reunifying or recollecting, remembering the body, um, and the body kind of comes completely into its own. There is simultaneously a kind of forgetting of the self. So there's two ways that the Buddhist tradition has talked about uh, the teaching of self and no self, or many ways, but about no self, they wanted to describe it. And one is the philosophical or the metaphysical way, and the other way is a psychological way. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophical or metaphysical, um, you can go 
to graduate school, graduate school and <laughs> have your professors not explain it to you. <laughs> and the other way, which is psychological, which is uh, the way that most I think, Buddhist practitioners and teachers are really concerned about the philosophical side. It's really not that interesting, perhaps, as a, a psychological uh, teaching of self and no self. And in talking about self and no self from a psychological point of view, uh, the interest is in, in investigating, understanding attachment, especially attachment to self and self-identity, and how we construct a self. And selfish, uh, the teaching of selfishness, self, selfishness, selflessness, <laughs> is in part an antidote to uh, to our attachment. And it said, to paraphrase slightly, um, selflessness is the cure for all attachment. No self. The teaching of no self is the cure for all attachments. However, the attachment to selflessness is the greatest illness. So be careful. (laughs) And the question of whether a self really exists or whether a self really doesn't exist really isn't that important of a question. Uh, the real important question is, um, is there attachment to a self? And understanding the attachment, penetrating the attachment, is much more interesting and than whether there is or isn't. So from looking at the teaching of self or no self from a psychological point of view, uh, we're interested in um, perhaps we can say overcoming the barriers, the limitations that are imposed on us by uh, our use of um, our identification with various concepts, various ideas of who we are, Um, the limitations of conceit, the conceit of I am. And I think we all know that we identify with a lot of things. We think a lot of things are who we are, important parts of who we are, and we can't do without it. And we identify, you know, we, we find our self-worth in such things as perhaps our work, or uh, our professional status, or in money, or in our, tra- our attractiveness, or intelligence. And on retreat, uh, you see it, um, you know, all the time. We identify with things and think this is who we are, and it becomes a big problem. Uh, one example is tiredness, for example. Tiredness arises, and if you think, I am tired, the tiredness is me, uh, you probably end up with a big problem. Um, but if you just see tiredness as a, as a phenomenon that arises and passes, and you see there is, t- there is tiredness, and you know, tiredness, tiredness, and you don't identify with it, um, tiredness doesn't have to be a problem at all.
the issue of uh, self was central uh, to uh, me in my years of uh, practice. And it's one, and kind of now in retrospect, I think, retrospect and thinking back, I can see how the issue of self reappeared over and over again in my practice, partly spurring me on and partly, o- partly opening up new vistas and understandings to me. And it's kind of like maybe the, one of the main threads. And there are various doors into uh, Buddhist practice, various doors that people take. And the, and the teaching or the understanding of no self is one of those doors, and that seems to have been one of my more regular doors into Buddhist practice. My first uh, interest in, in Buddhism, the first inkling I had of interest in it, was um, in the freshman dorms. I was the extreme pacifist uh, among my fellow students, and I was always defending my, my pacifist stance, so I was quite concerned about it. And it was the Vietnam War. And and uh, I realized at some point that in order to follow through on my idealism, uh, I had to be willing to put my life online, to put myself in a situation where, you know, some, some kind of act of civil disobedience, where maybe my life was threatened. And I realized that uh, I was really attached, and I was really afraid of doing something like that. And because I was so idealistic, perhaps, I felt that was a, that was a tremendous limit, limitation. And uh, I felt like I needed to do something about that. That was something I had to confront or deal with that fear, fear of giving up my life. Um, when I first started sitting regularly, I was living uh, with some friends, kind of in a rural farm. And there were just the three of us. And they didn't sit, but I started sitting every morning before breakfast. And I would become sit and become quite quiet and fairly content. And I had the feeling somehow of guilt as a regular sense of how I understood myself just wasn't there. And, and so I'd come down to breakfast and I'd still feel somewhat, somewhat calm and content. And I, not, in some ways I was felt completely there, but the old guilt quite, wasn't quite there. And what happened in, over the next few weeks was, or next, actually next week or two, was the tension at the breakfast table started going high, becoming higher and higher and higher. And my friends expected the old guild to be there. And it was difficult, you know, we couldn't quite make the adjustment. I didn't know how, they didn't know how. And I felt, well, either I have to lose my friends or I have to stop, I have to stop sitting. And uh, I chose at that time to stop sitting because I, I just didn't know what to do, it was too difficult. And then when I started sitting uh, more regularly, again, after about a year, uh, actually quite regularly, I started sitting every day, twice a day. Um, and when I first started sitting then, I had all these reasons why I wanted to sit. I wanted people to like me more, I wanted to become a better person, I thought I had more friends, you know, all kinds of, you know, fine reasons. You're laughing. <laughs> well, maybe you've been there too. <laughs> and um, so I sat for some months, and I, a strange thing happened. And that was I noticed that my reasons for sitting started to kind of drop off one by one. And until a point where I didn't have any more reasons for sitting. 
And I thought that was really strange because I'm kind of a rational person and I have to have reasons for what I do. And <laughs> but what was really strange was I kept, I kept sitting. And I kept sitting twice a day, every day. Now, this is really bizarre. Why am I doing this? <laughs> and I, I kind of, I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking, why, why am I doing this? And finally, after some time, the kind of what popped to mind, the kind of the understanding that I had, or how I, des- how I described it to myself, was that sitting had become for me the deepest form of self-expression that I had. And that I sat in order to express myself in the way that an artist might express herself or himself, um, you know, on the easel or on the, on the, on the whatever. And, uh, and I just I sat to kind of come back to that place. And looking back at that time, I, I think, I think kind of fondly at that time in many ways, the way I sat. And one way is that um, I knew virtually nothing about Buddhism. And I knew virtually nothing about meditation. I didn't know, you, that, I didn't know anything about that maybe you're supposed to get concentrated. I didn't know what mindfulness was. I didn't know about any of the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, all I, I kind of thought that meditation was about sitting in one place and just accepting what was happening. I didn't know that maybe you're supposed to be quiet, not think so much. I didn't know anything. I just sat. And there was a kind of a, I, could, I can kind of leave myself alone. It was kind of a lucky time. Later, you know, I started learning these various things, you know, like, oh, concentration. And then I'd, you know, try to do something. And I stopped leaving myself alone. And there's a, there's a, there's a certain perspective. Uh, maybe these three shouldn't hear this. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain perspective um, that what we've been doing this last week has been a disservice to you. You know, teaching you all this practice and things to do, and and <laughs> can I continue? <laughs> Because it's possible to, it's possible to have a lot of expectations and, and, and come to the practice of all these expectations. And I think what we're trying to do here is not to develop expectations in your mind, but rather somehow lay out the territory of our humanity, of our, what can happen to us, of our experience, so that we can learn to recognize it better when it occurs. And looking back at that time in my life, there was some purity in the way I sat. However, I, there was a lot of stuff I didn't recognize. And as a result, um, you know, I was kind of miserable at times also. Uh, I remember my first sittings, uh, first uh, longer sittings, my, um, the, the frustration would build the first days, you know. It was difficult. i get more and more angry. But I'm, I, was, I am, I was the kind of person who, who's not supposed to get angry. And uh, so I couldn't see it. I, wasn't, I didn't allow myself the... the, the the privilege of acknowledging, recognizing that I was angry. And I was really miserable until finally just like reached rock bottom and I just, there was nothing else to do but say, you know, gee, I'm angry. So, you know, so what we're doing here is just laying out to help you kind of learn to recognize what's actually present, not to set up some expectation.
And again, uh, the second time that I started sitting, I sat and I, and I kept sitting. Um, again, I felt you know this sense of self-expression. Another way of maybe saying it was a kind of personal integrity. I felt a certain kind of integrity when I sat that I didn't feel in my normal life. And two things, uh, I noticed two things, or two things resulted. And one was that, again, uh, I found it, found it difficult to be with my normal friends because I kind of wanted to be in, in a new way in the world. I wanted to somehow live from that integrity that I felt in sitting. And they kind of were kind of still into their habits and expected me to still be into my old habits. And, and it was kind of awkward. And the other thing I noticed was it was very difficult to learn to bring the practice into my daily life, to learn to practice the same kind of mindfulness and, and, um, and resting in some kind of trust or some kind of inner integrity that I felt in the sitting. And then I went to a Zen center, and it was quite nice um, because I found all these Zen students, I'd go see them, and I would, you know, I still had my trips for sure, and so I came with my trips, and there was no response. They were like a mirror. And I thought, this is really great. I'm seeing myself really clearly reflected in these people because they're not, they're not responding, they're not plugging into the way I'm playing the game. I thought it was really great. So I decided to go there and live there and kind of learn from these people. And I learned a lot. It was really great. But the, I stayed there for many years. But the, I stayed there for many years. And, after, and I stayed there, stayed there long enough to learn that uh, it wasn't that these people were particularly wise, they were just kind of aloof. <laughs> but they served me really well. <laughs> I think that most people at some point in their practice, some point or other, uh, begin realizing how much work is involved in maintaining the structure which defines our kind of this, the self, our identity. Um, and it's and because our identity, the thing, the identification, um, the, um, the conceptual sense of who we are, the self, is. Uh, is a mental construct, uh, we constantly have to reinforce it, we constantly have to rebuild it and create it. And it's a lot of work. Uh, it's work for the body. Sometimes our identity is in our body, our posture, and we hold ourselves in a certain way. Uh, we go about and we do all kinds of activities because we want to reinforce the certain identi identity we have. Um, we want people to see us in a certain way, so we do certain things so they see us in certain ways. We judge ourselves when we don't match our expectations of who we think we should be. Two things happen on a retreat, on a retreat like this, or in practice like this. One is, 
um, uh, doesn't really involve so much the mindfulness practice itself, but involves just leaving ourselves alone, not adding anything. One Zen master uh, talked about, said, don't put another head on top of your own. We just leave ourselves alone. And in leaving ourselves alone, all the kind of structures that we put together to kind of control life, uh, kind of settle away. Um, and often the silence, you know, just, just if you came together here for 10 days in complete silence and didn't even sit at all, I think because so much of our sense of self is tied up in speech and talking and in relationships that involve speech, only if we spent uh, uh, 10 days in silence, I think we'd leave ourselves alone and we'd have a different sense of who we are than uh, before we came. And then we have the mindfulness practice on top of it. And as we become uh, mindful and start recognizing and seeing and seeing deeper, deeper layers of ourselves, um, we see how some of our thoughts work and we see the repetitiveness of our thoughts. And, and it becomes in some ways a challenge to our thoughts, to our constructs, to our ego. I think it's quite also quite common uh, for people, and certainly happened to me, that as the mind becomes quiet, and as a lot of these normal structures of the mind, the thought patterns of the mind, settle down and are not there anymore, there's some period of calm. Uh, uh, fear can arise. It can, it can be frightening. Suddenly you realize, gee, you know, what's going to happen now? Uh, I'm going to, you know, I, I don't understand. You feel disoriented. Because a normal way of seeing and understanding oneself and the world somehow aren't there anymore, holding us up and supporting us. And maybe it's frightening. And it was frightening for me. And that's... Uh, and I find it kind of remarkable. It was remarkable, you know, when I reflected on it for myself, that I could get afraid sitting in a retreat like this. Uh, nothing was particularly was happening. You know, nice people all around me, and uh, nothing really was particularly threatening, and I was sitting there, and fear would arise, because I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know, you know, who I was, or the old sense of guilt wasn't there, and nothing else was happening, I mean, that was a completely safe place. Buddhist teaching on a self and no self and particular conceit um, has a nuance which sometimes isn't recognized so well in, or isn't in the West perhaps. And that is, um, in Buddhist terms, conceit involves not just thinking of oneself as superior to others, but it also uh, involves thinking of, of ourselves as inferior to others. And it involves thinking ourselves as being equal to others. All three. And you might ask yourself, what would it be like to live in the world and not think of yourself as either superior, inferior, or equal? And I think the, t- the understanding is that even if you have an idea that you're less than someone else, 
that still there's the comparison, judgment. There's still a sense of self that you have, that you're placing in a certain... You're thinking of yourself as a thing, as an object, which then you're defining in a certain way, you're identifying in a certain way. And that's not necessary to do it all. And if you see yourself as equals, that's not necessary. That's, a, that's also kind of extra to go around with this thought, you know, how can I be equal? And sometimes in the West we uh, hear talk about people who have a weak sense of self and you need to kind of build up a sense of self because your sense of self is weak. And I think that often, um, often I don't know about all the time, but um, often that's actually, from the Buddhist perspective, that's not actually so. That whether you have a weak sense of self or a strong sense of self, the sense of self is quite um, entrenched. Actually, there's a quite strong sense of self in either case. Uh, someone who is a codependent and has, uh, uh, identifies themselves with someone else, we might think of as being having a weak sense of self. And someone who's kind of really proud and arrogant and self-aggrandizes themselves, we think they have a strong sense of self. But both people are creating a strong identity. They're just putting it in different places. And rather than... Um, building a stronger sense of self for the person who has a weak sense, weak sense of self, one of the possibilities we have is of simply letting go or relaxing the, the need for identity entirely. And so we can rest in some basic ground of goodness or of completion or of fullness. And it was a surprise to me to learn uh, to realize that things like shyness uh, involves a tremendous sense of stro- strong sense of self. If you're very shy, there's a very strong sense of self there. And then we have uh, there's, you know, there's a whole market, it's probably a billion dollar market in the United States on building self-esteem. Uh, there's workshops and there's tapes and there's books and there's all these things you can do to build self-esteem. And uh, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It's perhaps maybe it's a good idea sometimes. But often, that's just adding another construction. And you have to do all these empowerment words and phrases and just adding these, all this stuff you have to do. It's more work. And it's fun to do work, but what you end up with is a certain tension. And you have to maintain the tension. The tension is if you have a poor sense of self-worth and you, and you, and you counteract it with an antidote of of saying phrases and doing all this stuff to feel your, you know, your self-worth or self-esteem, those two are going to be held in, often in kind of tension. And you have to kind of go through life with this tension between the two. And it's possible, again, to drop them both and find our fundamental sense of, of wholeness or completeness. And I wonder sometimes about, uh, in, in religious practice sometimes, uh, devotional practices, they talk sometimes about humility, developing humility. And I wonder if that's really necessary either, also. There's a poem by Emily Dickinson, which maybe kind of reflects 
the great relief it can be to um, to stop maintaining a strong sense strong identity of self she says I'm nobody who are you are you nobody too then there's a pair of us don't tell they'll banish us you know how dreary to be somebody how public like a frog to tell your name the livelong June to an admiring bog I'm nobody and an explanation point after that I'm nobody and when I read this poem I felt like she had all this confidence she was saying this with tremendous confidence One way of understanding the practice, which I think is often talked about, is, is that it's deepening layers of trust, deepening process of deepening trust, and learning that we can trust uh, our life, trust who we are, without having to add a lot of constructions and a lot of ideas and a lot of activity to hold up a certain idea of who we are. And we learn slowly in the practice that it's trustable to be here, and we trust. And then we meet, we come across our lack of trust, our lack of acceptance, our fears. And we don't have to let go of those. We find one of the remarkable things to find out is that you can trust being really present for your fear. You can trust being present for your non-trust. You trust that. And eventually the trust becomes so pervasive that maybe it can't even be called trust. It's no longer trusting. Trust is so... To say trust is to say too much, is adding another extra piece of baggage. So the teaching of no self is a teaching of trust, at least in my mind. Just to be alive is enough. And perhaps uh, because of this trust, Buddhism is uh, less interested in the question of the meaning of life as it is in uh, understanding the need we have for meaning. Where does the the need come for meaning? And a lot of people spend a lot of time searching for meaning, and that's maybe a good idea. I'm not going to say it's not. But uh, they never uh, take a, a backward step and ask, what about, where's this need for meaning coming from? What's that about? So an awakened person is called a great self. And I think that there's some way in which maybe you have a sense of it in this retreat already, that if you drop down into your body and, and abide in your awareness, allow your awareness to be present, to suffuse your body and to be in your emotions, that there's a kind of openness, a kind of expansive, expansiveness of awareness. Where is your awareness, I asked a few nights ago. Where is it? And. Uh, I think that awareness has some un- an unlimited, un- immeasurable, kind of unlimited aspect to it. 
It has no boundaries in some ways. And uh, we become kind of, we could become in some ways great, in a sense. There's a uh, quote from the Buddha. He says, A grain of salt does not make the Ganges undrinkable, but it does make a cup of water undrinkable. When we have a small sense of self that identifies and says, this is who we are and this is who I have to be, and we run around trying to maintain that, um, something that irritates it or frustrates us is going to make us quite angry. But someone who has a great sense of self, the same irritant, um, you know, just comes, it's okay. You don't have to get rid of the irritant. It just is a way of holding it. Just like uh, the Ganges holds salt without changing its taste. And perhaps the great self that we develop um, can also be understood as having a healthy sense of self. Um, and it isn't that we, ha- we lose all senses of who we are. And a healthy sense of self includes understanding of our qualities and our capacities, our potentials, our limitations, our relationship to the world, the consequences of our actions. All those come into the field of awareness and give us, give us in some sense, a healthy sense of who we are. I'd like to mention uh, briefly, since I, uh, partly because I started with mentioning feminism, um, that the teaching of no self uh, sometimes doesn't isn't so appropriate for some people in our culture. Not just sometimes just for women, but um, maybe women more often than not. And the flip side of no self, I should mention, is uh, empowerment, a certain kind of empowerment. That as we learn to trust and as we learn to kind of relax the structures and that we have, that we begin to uh, deeper movements begin to move within us. And we can feel empowered. Uh, it's not just simply a matter of giving up, letting go. So I'd like to say that, uh, that, again, that the teaching of no self um, is not something to believe at all. Please don't believe it. Um, It's rather, I think that maybe it's important to make some mention of it for people who are practicing, because uh, as we practice, the process of it, the the process of practice is understanding in new ways, ever new ways. Uh, uh, the, how so much of our life is not, not, ha, is not personal in some ways, not self. It comes together from conditions, impermanent. And so rather than a teaching, no self is a process of understanding that gets stronger and deeper and wider. Don't set up, don't set up the teaching, any teaching, as an ideal. Uh, really, uh, what we're interested in is here is staying and meeting the actual, being with the actual, regardless of whether it looks like an ideal or not. And I, I would like to just mention a kind of a maybe metaphor for mindfulness practice, which I like, which has been useful for me, is 
when we do mindfulness practice, we want to meet our experience, meet the moment, the present fully, be there completely for it. And it's sometimes easy when you're noting, uh, for the noting to become mechanical, and you kind of just kind of tangentially kind of note something, and you're off and the next thing, and you haven't really been present for something. You think you've been, you've noted it because you think you've been present because you've noted it, but the noting is kind of just you bounce off it and you're off to the next thing. You want to be there really fully for something. As, as, and the, the analogy is like meeting a friend. I think we all know what it's like to meet someone and they're either present for us or not present for us. And we want to offer our presence to our experience, just like we offer our presence to a friend. You know, like when we shake hands to someone and, um, Sometimes you shake hands at a party and they say hello and they put up their hand. By the time they, their hand is in your hand, they're off looking at the next person and you have this limp hand. That's kind of, we, that's not what we want to do in mindfulness practice. We want to be there fully and shake hands, like be there friend, in a friendly way. Be there fully. And then step by step, we learn to we learn not to be so limited by what we're present for, not to identify or attach to it. So now I'll get to my poem. This is a poem by a woman, but she writes it as if she was a father. And it's in a book called uh, Zen and the Art of Changing Diapers. (laughs) This practice can be done everywhere. Her name is Sarah Arson. So the father says, In my room, at last, I'm finally free to sleep my sleep and dream my dreams Besides your mom, who grows bigger each night with a new child getting ready to come into our lives. And I fear, with two babes in the house, I'll have no time at, no time at all for me. How will I sleep the sleep I need to be alert in my office every morning, or be free to walk the solitary paths I love, or find the time to think my thoughts with two like you crying in the night, asking for water, teddy bears, and who knows what else. What will I do then? What will I do? Just breathe in and out and watch my breath. Go out and in, they say. The teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, tells the tale of another father chasing down time enough to satisfy a rowdy son newborn daughter, wife, and self. That father meditates on breath and finds some way to make the time his children take his own time too. He gently twists and bends the hard dividing line between my afternoon, your morning, between work time, play time, between your time or my time for all the things to do. He relaxes the boundaries between me and you. 
That father stakes a claim to the days and hours he spends on baby baths and bottles, games and tears and grins, even midnight diaper changes as his time too. So he finds he now has endless time. Will I be able to do that as well? Only time and breath will tell. Let's sit a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.